Welcome to God Books, the podcast where we talk to bookshop owners all around the world. On this episode, you're sitting at home, you're stuck in there's a lockdown, social distancing, going stir crazy, and now here's something that you can do that you can look forward to. There's a sense of play to it, you know. When you walk inside Kapelen's Forslag, you are reminded that strong essences are kept in small bottles. This Oslo bookshop is dressed up in leather and wood and sells, in the word of its owners, interesting books, new second-hand or antiquarian titles, mainly in English and Norwegian. No bestsellers, chiclet, crime, nor self-help make the cut, unless extremely well-written, out-there weird, contrarian, or from a different era. Kapelen's Forslag publishes its own book as well, The Conversational Lexicon, an exquisitely crafted encyclopedia freed from factual accuracy that won the gold prize in the annual competition, The Year's Most Beautiful Books. Owners Peel Kapelen-Smith and Andreas Kapelen have been friends since they were 12 and together have created a space much beloved and championed by the local community. They travel the world with empty suitcases to get books for Kapelen's Forslag and come back with film-worthy stories. The bookshop has seen both weddings and fistfights and runs a death cafe, where people gather once a month to talk about death. We are very thankful to have Peel with us today to tell us all about this magical place. Actually, before I start, can I ask you how to pronounce your name, just to be sure that I pronounce it correctly? Is it Pil or is it different? Uh, it's a long E, it's Peel. Peel, okay. Uh, in Romanian, my name would be pronounced Sajata. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured you guys were Romanian, so I Google translated it. You, you, did, you did your homework, wow. Yeah, well, so did you. So, uh, yeah, we're all good. Hello and welcome to God Books. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Hello, Ileana, and hello, Antonio. And can I say, hello, David, you bundle of joy. You can come and pick up your money as soon as the lockdown ends. David, he's become uh, very famous for us because he's the very first listener to have sent us a voice message. And his request was to have you on our podcast because you, um, you're the owner of his favorite bookshop. He lives in Oslo and I would imagine he's a regular customer. I don't know if you, do you actually know who David is or can you guess who he might be? Oh, David published a volume of poetry and he had his book launch in this room. So, uh, no so sure, I know David, always happy to see him. We actually did not know that because we had no other information other than that he's Irish, that his name is David and that he lives in Oslo. And also we did like a, a dance of joy virtually when we saw that someone left us a voice message. <laughs> yeah, that must be great. Yeah, that's that's him. Sounds like David. <laughs> and with that in mind, if anyone else is listening who has favorite bookshops that we should feature, I just want to put it out there that you can send us voice messages too at anchor.fm slash gotbooks. But coming back to, to our conversation, it's really nice to have you with us. Can I ask you where you're joining us from? I can see you're in the bookshop. So can you tell us a little bit about the bookshop and what's around you as we speak? Sure. Uh, it's a very small room, smaller than most bookshops. Around me, there are three walls of books, one wall of windows, and this uh, odd collection of curios and weirdness. There's an old counter we have that used to be in a pharmacy until 1970 when they decided to chuck it and replace it with a beautiful new Respatex uh, table, which was, uh, they thought that was a great improvement. But I like this one a lot better, so it's a wooden one. I'm sitting in, a, in the throne, as you observed earlier, which is just a gesture to our, 
our customers really that uh, you know you're king in here when you come inside so you should sit like one way if you want to peruse a book or uh, just take a load off there's a cast iron dentist chair from about 1910 uh, there's a school desk from england with a inlaid inkwell a shrunken head a stuffed caiman a stuffed duckling a doll with a nun's habit and an inverted cross around her neck yeah you know that kind of thing it's a bit of a wunderkammer i wonder if we took this out of context and just uh played your description if anyone would guess that's a bookshop or what the first guess they might not but we we kind of don't want to look like a typical bookstore the the thousands of books should give you a hint what we do here but it should also be uh, it should, should also stimulate your imagination so that's why we have all these weird bits of stuff that just to you know get you going um how did it all start talk us through how you started how you came up with the idea and how did you and andreas your partner build this bookshop and why Yeah, I'll get to the why first. For me, it started in childhood. I enjoyed reading children's books, and uh, I discovered some books in my parents' bookshelves that they didn't want me to read because they thought it was I wasn't old enough for it. So, what they did was uh, put all those books that I shouldn't be reading yet on the top shelf in our living room, which made it easier to find. You know, I knew they were all you know all the top shelves are the ones that I shouldn't read, so those naturally caught my interest. And taking them down when I was alone for a little while and reading them, it just instantly opened this whole. You know, oh, there are several universes. You know, all of these alien, totally strange things. I didn't understand it, but it made me extremely curious. That's when the reader in me was born for real. And then a few years later, I uh, met this really interesting girl, and her father had an antiquarian bookstore. being inside that it just felt great in that space and that taken together with the, with the, just the action packed glamorous lifestyle that goes with being a book dealer it was a no brainer as i just realized i wanted to do it but it took until i was around 40 until I, the chance actually presented itself uh, in 2011 a space opened up in the building where i live in downtown oslo and i just arranged uh, a photo exhibition with a friend of mine Travis Shin a californian photographer and that went really well so uh, i was not getting paid for this i was just doing him a favor a return favor actually and him and his family came over and uh, when they left i drove them to the airport and just before he left you know disappeared inside the passport control he handed me about 4000 euros and he said this is payment for seeing myself on norwegian televisions with subtitles because someone did an interview with him and uh, i never saw that coming so suddenly i had seed money for this so that really gelled it so i thought okay i'll use this money and start buying books and i'll ask my friend andreas who was working at a chain bookstore at the time if he wanted to get in on this with me and he did so we got the contract for the space and uh, started building the bookstore So that's that's how it started, yeah. That's um just quite a story. I wanted to ask you your bookshop is very unique and it has very unique books and I would say it's quite surprising that in a good way that you found in Andreas a partner who you share the same vision for what you would like the bookshop to be. 
to be like um, and have the sort of books you have and also the aesthetic of the bookshop, which seems to be seems to me like it's very important for you, the leather and the wood and all of the objects that you mentioned in the beginning. Did you make everything from scratch or how did you get to gather all these things inside? Well, uh, a lot of it is, is built on site and uh, other stuff I've collected through the years. And then a lot of it is stuff that we pick up along the way when we go on our book runs to North America and Europe and yeah, everywhere else, really. I've been to Bangkok on a book run that's not recommended. But uh, we'll find some interesting object while we're running around looking for books anyway, and we'll bring it home and just try to build the space. Wherever you look, you should see something that, that activates your imagination. That's We're in the Im imagination business, you know. Mm -hmm. So and, and we did start this shop as, as a reaction to the streamlining of, of the bookstore industry. You know, the independents were, were dying off and you see more and more chain stores opening. They all look the same. They're all designed and geared towards, uh, you know, making you leave your money and they, they don't offer an added experience other than purchasing something and leaving the place. When we were going to have a bookstore, we wanted it to be an old school bookstore, a place where time slows down a little and where it's open to conversation and exploration and a place to, to stay a while when you come in through the door and not just go in, get what you want, pick up some vaguely book-related accessory uh, on the way out because they place that right next to the counter, you know, and there's this whole psychology of how you how you get people to to buy stuff. And we, we don't go in for that at all. Do you remember your first customer? So from the moment you opened the bookshop till the first person who came in and bought a book? The very first one? Yes. I can't say that I do. I remember uh, some of the first ones, but not the actual first one. But it wasn't long, right? I mean, I, I imagine people just saw this nice shop open and they, they walked in. Well, uh, not a lot of people see this bookshop because it's on a side street that's that's kind of like Reeperbahn in Hamburg. It's, it's, uh, it's a very seedy neighborhood. So uh, I, I think a lot of people are afraid to walk these streets. Uh, it is changing fast. It's It's being gentrified as we speak. There are huge machines rebuilding the street uh, next to ours. But we, we quickly found a group of people who understood what we were trying to do and who uh, wanted to give us their support and wanted to be a part of this community that surrounds the store. So you already mentioned that uh, your bookshop, and we can't wait to come visit, but that your bookshop is quite different than, obviously, than chain bookshops, right? Which we all know and maybe don't love so much necessarily because they're all very similar. And another trait to them is that you kind of know what books you're going to find there and you know what to expect. We now um, can very easily find out where are the top 100 most sold books. And if we walk into a bookshop, a chain bookshop, we kind of know, okay, they're going to have those on their recommended reads because those sell. It's almost like an algorithm, like a self-fulfilling. A yeah. prophecy, right? Um, I'm just going to quote quickly from your website. It says that you sell interesting books amid most current bestsellers, chick lit crime and self-help, unless they are extremely well-written, out there weird, contrarian, or from a different era, then they're interesting again. So mm. we really like that. Uh, I think it speaks a lot to what we were trying to achieve also with this podcast to shed some light on some maybe not so known corners of, of literature, find some bookshops that are doing things that are out of the ordinary. So 
Is anything that is not popular interesting to you or how do you define interesting, a very vague concept? Well, I'll give you a vague answer. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, certainly anything that is not popular is not by that virtue alone interesting. And the popular stuff can be. We just figure it's, it's a tiny space that we have, you know. So we need to curate and select our books with care because we can't uh, stock it all, you know. So if there's a book that you can buy in a gas station, then by definition, we don't need to carry it. So we can, uh, we can just spend our time trying to look for the unusual and, and the hard to find and the odd and curious and weird. Those are the used and antiquarian books mostly. We also stock new titles. We have a deal with a warehouse in England called Gardner's where, where we can get new titles from. So we have all, all the kinds of new, used, antiquarian books. Can you give us an example of a, uh, an odd book that you have? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so many. For instance, there was, one, there was one book that was, I think it was a penguin or a pelican. The writer of this book, his mission was to establish his theory that all samurai in medieval Japan were secretly a homosexual brotherhood. And we found that book in Edinburgh or Glasgow, picked it up because it meets all our requirements. It is, uh, it's super odd. It does not have a lot of proponents, this theory. And we thought that's, that's weird enough. We'll, we'll take it. It survived the store for one day, I guess. One of the first customers to come into the shop saw it and said, oh, gay samurais, I'll take it. <laughs> and then there's uh, how to survive grizzly bear attacks, uh, how to win a Pac-Man. This all manner of craziness. Uh, and, and these books will just disappear. They don't get reprinted usually. So, so they kind of just leave the river of books forever. And we're always happy when we can uh, rescue them for a little while and, and make them available again. Although it's usually just the one copy that we find. Yeah. I think you would really enjoy visiting a, a bookshop that we interviewed recently in the Monkey's Paw. You might have heard the, us talk to them in Toronto. I did hear that, yeah. If you've been there already or if it's on your on your list. No, can, I've never been to Canada. No, it's, it's been strictly continental Europe and North America. I've given arm to go anywhere at this stage, so I'm hoping to visit someday. I'm sure we, we can relate to that for sure. So you already mentioned some of the trips you took in different parts of the world in order to find books, and that's a quite unusual approach for booksellers, at least booksellers nowadays. I guess it, it used to be in the history of bookselling a bit more common travel for books, mm. but um, that's so much nowadays. So can you tell us a bit about how you get a hold of the books in the store? Yeah, pre-COVID times, uh, we'd go on book runs to other countries. English is the language where you find the most books that will sell here. And that's why we ended up going to mainly English-speaking countries or countries with a big, large contingent of expats. Amsterdam is a good city for, uh, for used books, I find. We'd go to Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dublin, London, Amsterdam, places like this. Uh, twice a year, we'd go to New York and then do a side trip to Boston or Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or you know surrounding towns that were within range. Let's imagine one of these trips. I'll take Dublin because it's my favorite city in the world and you just mentioned mm -hmm. it. So if you arrive in Dublin, where do you go? Where do you find books? Oh, there's, uh, the, there are a lot of different stores and uh, places and you develop, uh, one thing is, is experience. You, you've been there before, you know where to go. 
But then you also have to just uh, read up and try and ask other book dealers, if you were me, where would you go? What's a good place for rarities or first editions? Or who's got a huge selection, uh, that kind of thing. And just go from one place to the other. It involves a lot of taxi trips because yeah, you'll have uh, huge bags of books and you can't carry them around from one store to the next. So you'll go back to the hotel, leave them there, back out into the city, see what you can find. And then there are all these other experiences that, that go with this. I mean, you, you do your work for the day, but then the rest is leisure time. And that's fantastic. I mean, we basically built a city vacation machine that would pay for us to go abroad every six weeks. Of course, it really you know, eats up a lot of the revenue because you have to add the airplane ticket, hotel and, and food and such transport when you get there. But we've still largely managed to make it pay so that we find enough stuff, good, good enough titles, rare enough titles, that they will uh, take them together, will pay for the trip and leave a little extra to, you know, to maintain the store. That sounds like a great business trip, to be honest. I'd like to be on. It's a great business trip. It's horrible. As an as a exercise in capitalism, we'd flunk. But that was never the point. I mean, we don't have a mercantile bone in our bodies. We do this for, for entirely different reasons than to get rich, which is something uh, you won't get in, in this business if you're an independent, in our experience. But uh, there's some great times, great people, great meetings, uh, great experiences that come with it and more than make up for uh, the meagerness of the profits. Speaking of some of these great experiences, I know that you find interesting things in these books that you buy in this antiquarian books. And sure. I do know that at one point you found a letter and maybe you still have that letter and you'd like to share the contents of it with us. Sure. I mean, not only do I have the letter, we've framed it and it's, it hangs on the wall in the store. We've found some great stuff. Thank you note from Paul Oster in one book that was uh, for a journalist who'd written an article about him and sent it to him. So suddenly there's uh, Paul Oster's autograph inside some second-hand volume. But the best one, and we did talk about this, what book this was from, I can't remember really. It's a letter, and it's got the letterhead of the British Museum, the Department of Printed Books. There's no date, but the telephone number is 8621. So it's got to be a while ago. I'm thinking it's uh, at least 50 years old. <clears throat> and, uh, and this letter says, Dear Mr. Friend, after your recent disgraceful behavior at the committee meeting with Miss Kennedy, I have no option but to ask for your resignation. Exposing your person to her is not very becoming from a person of your standing. Miss Kennedy is in a deep state of shock and under sedation. I have myself never seen anything like it in my life. You will tender your resignation to me forthwith with your telephone number. Signed. Mr. D. A. Thomas. And then on the back of the letter, it says, <laughs> give my love to D. <laughs> yeah. That is excellent. I mean, uh, the mystery that this, this letter contains is just uh, astounding. So I, I did send an email to the British Museum trying to just, uh, you know, who's D. A. Thomas? Who's Mr. Friend? Miss Kennedy tried to figure this out, but I never got a reply. So it's, it's still a mystery. Did you try to Google the names and see maybe one of them works at the British Museum or worked there in the past? Or I did Google. I didn't find anything that, uh, especially not on Mr. Friend. He's a total blank. 
D.A. Thomas is a writer, but I don't think that's him. And Miss Kennedy? Unless it's Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, if she was maybe a, some sort of uh, patron of the British Museum, it's, it's not impossible. Not very likely either, but yeah. <laughs> but did anyone use this letter to then write a novel based on intrigue there? <laughs> oh, no, that's up for grabs. Yeah. Come by the store, read it, do what you want with it afterwards. It's public domain. Perfect. That is, uh, yeah, that is a great find. Uh, at one point, I'm sure we'll make a top of uh, the greatest finds booksellers tell us, and this will be in mm. in this top for sure. I wanted to ask you about the type of people who visit the the bookshop because the literal writing on the wall in your bookshop, right under mm. the name Kaplan's Kaplan's mm. Forslag, it says madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics. And I wanted to ask you. Would you say that these are the type of customers you have? And where do you and Andreas fit in? <laughs> uh, well, first off, I'll have to say that madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics originate from a Russian writer called Yevgeny Samyatin. He wrote this dystopian sci-fi novel in the 20s called We. And uh, this description is from, it's from his description of uh, what kind of people become writers. It says bureaucrats and politicians and accountants don't become writers. But the guys who fit into these categories are the ones who will see this as a vocation. I'd say that uh, it's not hard to fit into at least one of those categories. And I think uh, Andreas and I, yeah, all of them, I guess. He, he's maybe not as much of a rebel, which is why he does the accounting. But uh, other than that, it's... Uh, I mean, I, I consider it an honor to be called any of those things. You can do some uh, rebellious accounting as well. You certainly can, yeah. I hope he doesn't. <laughs> so you're two rebels, or one rebel and one accountant running an independent bookshop. And we know also from talking to to other booksellers and just generally by you know reading the news that running an independent bookshop nowadays is uh, certainly not easy. And... We heard that you also had your fair share of, of challenges and you were close to closing the shop a few times. And out of that semi-desperate situation, out of necessity, a few really great ideas were born. So I wanted to start with maybe the greatest idea that was born out of it, which is the conversational lexicon. Can you tell us what this is and how this came about? Sure. About the running a, an independent bookstore not being easy, that's certainly true. And we're bas that's basically our default situation is going out of business. We've been going out of business since 2011. But yeah, we're coming up on our 10th anniversary now in June. So, so somehow we've managed to, to stay put and, uh, and duked it out for this long. So, you know, we're not about to give up. But yeah, it was around 2014, the first time we kind of felt the crunch and, uh, and, and it dawned on us that, you know, we've amassed this great collection of books and a beautiful room to store them in. And suddenly these jerks start coming in from the street and buying the books, taking them away. In the beginning, we'd, we'd even say, you know, we'd offer, you can have this one for free if you leave that one, you know, where it is. And, and again, that's nonsense from a business standpoint. Yeah, so we started thinking, uh, what can we do? You know, we've got to do something. We've got to try and, and offer something new so we can open this new avenue of revenue for the store. And it occurred to me that encyclopedias 
the last one that was published on paper in Norway was in 2004. It was a genre that was kind of dead. And uh, it could be uh, appropriated, repurposed for something else. So I thought that there's a long tradition for uh, subjective encyclopedias. This is by no means the first one. It's, it's in a tradition that spans centuries. But I thought, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could get writers we like to redefine words, people, places, and ideas along the lines of what they think, what it means to them, not what the consensus is and what the objective facts about something is, but rather how you feel about it and, and uh, you know, what it could be other than what the literal definition is. This turned out to be a challenge that writers really loved. And so we got uh, 87 Scandinavian writers and artists to supply uh, texts and uh, artwork to us. And we did a, a crowdfunding, just get a, get a budget for this. And we asked for a, a quarter million Norwegian kroner, which is about 25,000 euros. And we got uh, 40,000. We were overfunded by 53%. So that gave us the chance, of course, to just go crazy and, and make it even more exclusive. It was hand-bound by a bookbinder down the road. We're not spoiled with bookbinders here. There are only two in Oslo. We've hired both at various points. Was that the original plan, to make it a beautiful encyclopedia, hand-bound? Sure. Rather? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was uh, one thing was that uh, it was uh, to help us keep the store open, but it was also absolutely a, a huge fuck you to the big publishing houses where, where the quality keeps going down, paper quality gets worse and worse. Prices stay the same or rise, and you keep getting a product of less quality, but the price only goes up. Also, there's this scourge of ebooks that I uh, personally don't like don't like reading long-form stuff on, on a screen. So we wanted to make a paper book and just end this discussion once and for all. What's better, an e-book or a p-book? And I think uh, our book, just uh, that's the final word in that discussion. We can close it now. Paper books are superior and always will be. And uh, yeah, so we, we had that leather bound and tried as, as hard as we could to make it exquisite in, in every sense. And the video of you making the... Um, conversation and lexicon. Not, not me, and but it's, uh, the bookbinder, yeah. Yes, the bookbinder. And it's very, very oddly satisfying. It is, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah. so uh, we recommend it, definitely. It's very beautiful to see how this book is being made. But oh. also, you know, you... So you have George Saunders who contributed to the lexicon mm. and other quite known names. Yeah. Um, could you give us an example of something they, let's say... What did George Saunders pick to define in his own terms? Well, that was strange because George Saunders is a, a Buddha of a man, an absolute joy to, to communicate with. And, and you know, I, I thought after the, this was in the second volume, there are two books. The first one was only in Norwegian, Danish and Swedish, but the second one is in 11 languages, if you count Braille, which I do. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just go for broke and ask the people, you know, ask people I really admire, but it's really outside our reach, but it can't hurt to ask, you know. So I just sent him an, an email, explained the project and said, would you like to be a part of this? And he said, uh, yeah, this sounds great. What do you want? When do you want it? And I uh, did a bit of a dance in my kitchen when I got that email and then sat down and picked five words for him and sent them off. About 24 hours later, I had six contributions from him. The five that I'd asked for and the sixth one, ventriloquist, 
which is maybe the best one of them all. So that's, yeah, that, that's this energy and people like to do this sort of stuff, I think. We all share the love of books and they have, uh, George Saunders has, he has all the talent he needs to just uh, write something. The same evening he gets the assignment, he'll, next day you'll get something absolutely great from him. And he must know that his name will also help, you know, market and sell the book, which is true for a lot of the names that are in both volumes, that the, they sort of lend their credibility and their talent to us and in that way help support the store. Mm. I, I love that he said yes to, to this. And I also love that you asked him and that you asked uh, so many writers. Another uh, bit of advice we got from another bookseller is if you want to ask someone to do something, just ask anyone. It doesn't matter how famous they are, how important they are in their field, just ask. And you know, they, they might say yes. And oftentimes they'll say yes. Sure. Uh, and, and of course, if you have a marquee name, other writers will think, oh, yeah, I want to be in that club. You know, uh, if he's in, that's good enough for me. I'll do it. Another writer or contributor to the lexicon is Jarvis Cocker, who just uh, happened to walk into the store one day with his son, Albert. He'd walked past it. He was in Oslo giving a talk in, at some music conference. And walking by the store in the evening, he looked at it and thought, yeah, OK, I'd like to come back here tomorrow. And so he came in, he had a cup of coffee, uh, a nice chat, bought a couple of books, and I, I pitched this uh, second volume to him. And he said, uh, sure, I'll do it. Here's my email. That was it. And then again, with a man of his intellect and stature, you know whatever he, he delivers is going to be good. Who wouldn't want to be in that company, you know? So although most of these people didn't know about each other, it's, it's just a good energy surrounding the whole project. And by now, I think we have 10,000 copies printed. And it still sells, which is unusual. It doesn't follow the normal cycle of shelf life. Yeah, it's, uh, can, can you order it online? Yeah, sure. Yeah. The, the second volume has a lot of English, but it also has a lot of German and some Afrikaans and some Icelandic and Macedonian and Russian and oh, I love that. Braille and yeah. I, I asked the, the writers if they spoke uh, wrote in languages other than English or Norwegian if they would mind sending me just one of their texts in their original native language and I'd publish it because I'd, I like looking at the Cyrillic alphabet for instance. It's beautiful. You don't have to understand what it says and it'll be translated somewhere else in the volume anyway. But just to have this block of text and, and uh, contemplate that for a little while, can, that can be a joy in itself. And also people like Blixa Bargelt, uh, Nick Cave's old guitar player and singer of uh, Einstürzende Neubauten, who also, to my enormous joy, said yes to be a part of this. He, he is a native German speaker and he sent me his texts in German. And I thought I'd like for him to be able to read it in his own language, but I'd also like to, for, for him to see what it looks like in Norwegian and English for people who don't speak any of those languages. So in his case, his definition of Godzilla, which is really a meditation on Berlin, I think, that's published side by side in German, then English, then Norwegian. So. You can read them in all languages. If you want to learn something, you can correlate. If you're studying Norwegian, for instance, living in Oslo, you can look at it it's like a dual text, so you can see what it looks like in either language. I was listening to your TEDx talk, and you mentioned that the conversational lexicon was stolen at one point. <laughs> one copy, yeah, the first one. And then the community came together and they raised the, the funds 
for this book and then much more actually than what happened was uh, they they did yeah our customers did make a little kickstarter fundraiser of their own but what had happened was that someone had broken uh, into the store broken the glass door to the shop and then stolen copy one of the first conversational lexicon which had sentimental value and it had symbolic value to us we wrote a very very hurt and angry letter about this on social media the next day and people caught on to this and then they got together and financed money for a new door for us and they overfinanced it by about 100% so we had twice the money we needed for a new door i think uh, about you know two and a half thousand euros and we said thank you guys that's lovely but it's only going to cost half that and they said well spend the rest on uh, an alarm system maybe you know so so that that worked out really well i think and then to, to make it harder for the thief this book was published in 1010 copies in the first edition all leather bound by hand so i thought how can i how can i get back at this person and so i thought okay we'll stamp every single other copy with a stamp saying this book was not stolen on 24th of october 2014 or, or whatever the date was that's great and that was a good two three days of work of stamping all of these books uh, but it was worth it because if anyone ever finds a first edition of this book that does not have that stamp it is the stolen one and we will be very happy to see it returned although i don't think it'll happen that's so funny it's a really clever idea i would have thought i was going to ask you if you managed to to solve the mystery of who not this far but you know uh, the river of books is ever flowing and someday it might come back and at least you know we we did what we could yeah uh, speaking of this community spirit you had another idea also designed to help you out when your bookshop is in danger of bankruptcy mm. and that is a bankrometer Bankruptometer, yeah. Bankruptometer. Mm. So when you're close to, when you're not far from closing for good, it signals that and your customers can see it. And in mm. the month after you install this, sales increased by 600%. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very simple. I mean, I, I, just, uh, I just drew a sign with a little arrow showing whether we're close to saying uh, goodbye, thanks for everything, or opening an account in the Caymans. And wherever we, we are between those two extremes, then the, the, this arrow will, will point to the place we're at financially and how far we are from closing for good. So people will come in or send an email and ask, what's the status on the bankruptometer? And we'll let them know. But uh, it's, of course, back to the, the, the fact that we don't know how to run a business and you don't... You don't uh, go public with the fact that you're struggling. It's, it's not the recipe for success at all. But, you know, the people who, who use this store and, and like this place, yeah, they're a generous, uh, supportive bunch. And they, they will take note, so far at least. And those, this uh, 600% increase in revenue lasted for months and months. We put it in the window in November and, and it lasted until April or something before it was back to normal again. Anyone who's interested can just have a glance through the window and see where we're at. How, how regularly do you update it? Not very often. I mean, the last year, it's, <laughs> these are extreme uh, circumstances and normal rules, rules don't really apply. 
do you think the reaction you got, the 600% increase is mm. incredible, right? Um, do you think it's a sign of something else that generally we, of course, want our local shops and especially our local bookshops to stay alive, to stay in business. Mm. But at the same time, as readers, as consumers, we might be, despite wanting them to stay alive, making purchases online. And we kind of know in the back of our head that this is wrong because we're not supporting our local shops, but mm. for convenience or different reasons, maybe price, we still do it. As soon as we know that our local shop is in danger, we'll go and rescue it, right? But how how do you explain this kind of <laughs> dual behavior? And I guess as a uh, part of that question is, should we then make people more aware all the time of how in danger bookshops are all the time, right? They're always in danger of disappearing if people don't buy books from them. I think our experience is that you'll find yourself being the boy who cried wolf. If all you do is moan about how badly your business is going, then at some point people are saying, well, you know, learn something and shut it down and stop whining about it. So you've got to be careful. That's, that's not the signal we want to just keep sending. Book lovers are passionate people and, and they, they will step up if there's something they can do. I know a lot of people who are, like myself personally, I, I haven't made a purchase on Amazon since 2004, I think. There's no reason to do it. It's not even that much more or that much cheaper, although you get the delivery faster, maybe. I keep reading these really happy stories. When the Strand in New York were struggling, all they had to do was post about it. And uh, there were lines around the block to help them out. Same with Shakespeare and Company in Paris, I think, had the same problem. And it's, it's the same for everyone, pretty much. Maybe from time to time... We just need a reminder that, hey, your, your local bookshop needs you. For sure. Absolutely. We have a lot of customers that are kind of uh, Luddites in the sense that uh, they have a certain contempt for uh, online shopping. And they're a dying breed for sure. But so far, a lot of them come to this place. So, so that helps. That's not saying we have a huge customer base. It's just saying that the ones we have are pretty dedicated. Now for the bookseller's quiz. How many books are in your shop? In the shop, there is about two and a half thousand titles and an additional seven uh, thousand in the basement. What was the last book you sold in your shop? The last book we sold was Werner Herzog's diary from the making of the movie Fitzcarraldo called Conquest of the Useless. What would you do if you couldn't sell books anymore? Uh, I know Andreas' answer to this question is a quote from the band The Replacements, where the individual members would say, janitor, milkman, dead. I'd probably settle for crime lord or prime minister or something. It's not as cool as being a bookseller, but... Uh, Andreas is very Bukowskian. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, surprisingly, yes, yes. Uh, but uh, you know, milkman is probably within range. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'll think about it when I have to. We do need to have side gigs. You know, Andreas is an actor a lot of the time, so am I on rare occasions. I do the weddings and funerals and uh, other things. So we're quite used to being booksellers, but also being other things at the same time. It seems to be how it has to be for us to be able to run this place. And it's a trade-off that we're happy with. What book are you reading at the moment? 
Uh, right now I'm reading, rereading actually, uh, Gabriel Witkop's The Necrophiliac, because I can't recall right now what made me like it so much in the first place. So I'm just reacquainting myself and finding out what the deal was. What's your second favorite bookshop? That's a tough one. I think just for selection, the best bookstore in the world is Masked Books on Avenue A in Manhattan. I've never seen as condensed a selection as that. Every single title is an absolute find. But for atmosphere, The Strand, just a couple of minutes walk from Mast. They have their rare book room uh, on the third floor. It's uh, just this refuge. It's a real haven. You have so many interesting things happening in your shop and so many different ideas that uh, we've, we were hoping to, to be able to ask you about all of them, but uh, let, let's see if that's possible. Tell us a little bit about your first edition lottery. What is that and how does it work? Well, that's, that's another uh, attempt at salvaging the, the store. After the first lockdown, we slowly realized uh, the long-time repercussions of this was uh, more serious than usual that it could mean the end of the store. Uh, so we had to do something. So it occurred to us, we have something in the store that is uh, enormously desirable for collectors and, and just book enthusiasts that is really prohibitively expensive for most people. And that, that, those are the really the rare first edition, uh, it, almost impossible to come by titles that we've collected over years. It could be a, a signed first edition by a, an author who's dead and didn't sign much when he was alive, for instance, that kind of thing. And so we hit upon the idea of if we can offer these books to people in the form of a lottery, then they can, for a small amount of money, you can buy more than one ticket, obviously, but you can buy one ticket. You have a shot at uh, buying a book that you would never have the money to buy. Otherwise, you know, they could cost uh, 2,000 euros and you'd, you'd love one of those, but you can't really afford it. So we said, okay, we're going to put those, one of those up for, for a lottery and then you can buy tickets. If you don't win, you'll still have helped us. Thank you for that. But you, you could be the winner of a, a signed copy of the City Lights edition of Howl by Allen Ginsberg, for instance, which I've seen people burst into tears in the, in the store just from holding in their hand. So we did that, and it was, uh, that, that worked fantastically well. And I, assuming that booksellers are a large part of your, uh, of your audience, uh, I'd like to pass that on because it worked so well and because it gives people a way to help, and people often want to help, but they don't know how to do it. You know? And this is a, a simple and easy way for them to do it. Now, in Norway, there are some gambling laws that prohibit lottery without a license. But yeah, we didn't look look into that because if we knew a lot about it, uh, then we couldn't claim uh, innocence. So uh, basically, it's you know if they say you're not allowed to run games of chance, and we say there's a pandemic on, is there anything about this? It feels like a game to you. <laughs> you know, this is deadly serious business. So so that worked really well, and I re recommend it for for other independent booksellers if you have something that's unique and expensive and you wish it could get it into someone's hands who really would love to, to own it. Have a lottery. We've, we've had some fantastic titles. Uh, would you like to hear what we've, uh, the books that we've uh, raffled uh, so far? Yes, yes, please. Uh, we've let go of a copy of Kafka on the Shore by Murakami, first English language edition signed by him. 
he doesn't sign a lot. So that's that was very attractive. Then we've had a short story by Charles Bukowski that's been illustrated by Robert Crumb called There's No Business. And that was only this, this version was made in 400, 126 copies and handbound by Earl Grey, not the tea, but the person. This one was signed by both Bukowski and Crumb. So that was one of the people went crazy over that, you know, pay three euro and maybe you'll own it. One person did, you know. We sold so many tickets for this this particular raffle that we put up a second prize, which was a copy number 595 out of 700 of a literary magazine called The Wormwood Review. I think it was from 1978. That was uh, dedicated to Bukowski in its entirety. It was called Legs, Lips and Behind. So that's, I mean, that'll moisten any collector. It's a great object. And the first title with Crumb and Bukowski sold so well that we could add this on, you know. We didn't make any extra money from that, but it was just in the heat of the moment and the joy of this, oh, this might actually work. This is going really well. Let's add some value for the people who buy tickets, you know. After that, it was a signed copy of Howl. And then another Bukowski with a silk screen print that he'd made. Inside the book and his signature, of course, that was number 41 out of 225. That also went so well that we just threw in a, a signed first edition of How to Be Alone by Jonathan Franzen, just so people could be a little more excited. You know, I mean, you might not win Septuagenarian Stew by Bukowski, but with a silk screen print, you're still in the running for a Jonathan Franzen signed first edition, you know? Oh, I would have loved the Jonathan Franzen signed first edition. Yeah, a lot of people would have. You're sitting at home, you're stuck in, there's a lockdown, social distancing, going stir crazy. And now here's something that you can do that you can look forward to. There's a sense of play to it, you know. We actually made more on those books than we would have if we sold them at retail prices. Mm -hmm. And then after that, there was a poster from the 70s uh, promoting an evening with William Burroughs and John Giorno at this legendary Oslo club called Club 7. It's long gone. That poster was signed by both Burroughs and Giorno. And then it was signed first edition of Patti Smith's Wool Gathering. And the latest one that we did last month was uh, first edition of the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. That people also, that was surprisingly, people were surprisingly interested in this one. We called them rent lotteries, really. Buy a ticket and help us pay the rent for this month. I'd love to see other, other bookstores do this thing. And I'd love to take part in that. No way, you can, you can. We don't know what we're doing next. I think assigned Raymond Carver or Umberto Eco is up for the next lottery. And then, yeah, that's, that's the beauty of going to New York twice a year. You'll never find a more capitalist environment, which means that prices for first editions are as low. They're lower there than they'll be anywhere else in the world. Hmm. Because if someone can sell it for a dollar less, then they will and uh, the customer will go there. So it's competitive in a way that it isn't in Europe, I find. And it's how you pay for a trip to America and back uh, just on the strength of a suitcase full of rare books. You guys are full of creative ideas. And even in COVID times, you found a way to raise awareness about the situation. And I'm not sure if you did it because you can tell us whether Maybe people in Norway were in disbelief and were not really ready to comply with the new rules and with the masks and everything. But you went fully suited and with gas masks on hmm. to deliver books to people. How did that happen and how was it received? 
Oh, it was received incredibly well. As, as you say, quite rightly, the, the original idea was people don't seem to be... Uh, we, we're, we're a sedate and phlegmatic bunch up north. And everyone's going, yeah, yeah, that's the Chinese problem. It won't really apply to us. And now the Italians are getting it. But, you know, they're so huggy. All, all this uh, physical contact, we don't really go in for that uh, up here. It's way too cold. So we didn't take it seriously. And, and I'd been clued into this quite early because a brilliant friend of mine who's a bit of a conspiracy theorist, he was on this in January saying there's a pandemic coming you know, way before anyone else. And we don't agree on most of the stuff that he comes up with, but he got this one right. So when lockdown came to Norway, we'd already, we closed the day before the rest of the country got the order to do so because we thought we can't stay open under these circumstances. But of course, it was also hurting us. So we thought, how can we keep the store going and also create this visual reminder to make people just think for a second time? You know, you, you walk into some suburban street and suddenly there are these two guys in full hazmat suits uh, walking around looking for an address. We hoped it might get people thinking. And, and it did. And also, so then we offered a, a lot of books online and people ordered them and then we'd come to their house and deliver it. People would lower baskets from the third floor on a rope. We seemed to appeal to the people who did take this seriously, yeah. which was good, you know, good to see. So that, uh, that worked really well. And then The Guardian featured this as well, which uh, I'm sure helped. Well, by, by that time, by the time The Guardian video came out, we'd stopped doing it because after three whole days of driving around and delivering these books, it occurred to us that from a safety perspective, visiting every zip code of the city every day might not be the wisest way forwards. So yeah. uh, we, we keep telling people to isolate and then we're zipping around all over town every day. It wasn't a good look. So we, we hung up the hazmat suits after the first three delivery runs. And that was that. And right now, I know that so there was a two-week closure announced and now it's been prolonged. Mm. But you posted on your website, actually, the announcement that you're closing for two weeks and also mm. the song Two Weeks by FK Twigs, which I can appreciate to help your customers cope with this. And I wanted to ask you about this polyamorous um, relationship with other forms of artistic expression. Because I know the bookshop is very stylish. You clearly have a love of visual arts and crafts. And I wanted to ask you, would you forgive a bad book that is a great exercise in style? Uh, and would you judge a book by its cover? Hmm. Well, first off, uh, that FKA Twig song, Two Weeks, that is... <laughs> Absolutely delicious. It is, uh, it is, it's true. I, 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 I'm always looking for an excuse to put that on, you know, to maybe get one or two people to hear this wonderful song that they hadn't heard before. But yeah, I mean, uh, polyamorous, uh, sure, why not? I was in love with language from when I was a kid. Visual arts is just another form of language, and I like to learn and try to become more fluent in those other modes of expression. And uh, it's all about the same thing, really. It's just uh, communication, whether it takes the form of a novel or a leaflet or a sculpture or a graffiti piece. It doesn't really matter. It's it's all communication, and, and that's what uh, it's, I find that enormously interesting. And so do all our customers, obviously. And then to your next uh, question, would you? What was that again? Would you forgive? Would you forgive a bad book that is a great exercise in style? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I would. Because, I mean, some, not all of them, but for instance, take a writer like Donald Bartolome, who is a great experimentalist, or was, he's, he's dead, unfortunately. He would just experiment wildly with, with the form of short stories. Sometimes he'd get it right, and those are some of my favorite short stories in the world. I mean, he, he's a master at this stuff. But that's when his experiment gelled and it worked. Uh, but I will, I will happily read his crap stuff, knowing that if he didn't do this wild experimentation, then we wouldn't arrive at the good stuff that he produced. You know, because he's just trying this, trying that. Let's see what happens if, or if every sentence is numbered, and you have to write a story that's a hundred sentences long. All the insane premises that he will happily take seriously for the for the sake of a story and explore bad stories. Uh, we wouldn't have the good ones without them, I think. Yeah, I know. I think um, so. I recently watched After Hours, which is a 1980 film by Martin Scorsese, which is very. Yeah, the Nero was in there. No, no, no. It's like it's quite an unknown film, and it's an absurd film. It's very Kafka-like and dream logic. Yeah, I saw it a long time ago. Yeah, it's an exercise in style, basically. Yeah, basically, mm. this guy wanders the whole night, and everything that could go bad. Mm. just goes bad and it's just incredible and it's incredibly funny but incredibly enjoyable mm. so yeah i i, I agree sometimes style, style is is a mode of expression as well you know derek jarman the the english filmmaker went blind in his later years before he died and his last film was called blue that was the last color he could see and that is a feature-length film that is just the color blue on the screen And I remember being, I was running a film club in my hometown with some other people in the 90s. And we had this heated discussion. Some, some of us thought that this is worthless. This has no merit. It's just a blue screen. That's not cinema. And others were saying, well, absolutely it is cinema. It's just pushing the boundaries a little and it's unusual. But how can you know what it'll do to you unless you expose yourself to it? So I'm happy to let the exercise in style, I'll, I'll accept it happily if it ends up arriving at something. And then there was one last part of your question. What was that? If you would judge a book by its cover. Mm. Now would I do that? Yes, I would. I wouldn't totally reject the book because the cover is bad. But a good cover will help. One of the things that pushed me over the edge to decide to start this bookshop with Andreas was I was in a bookstore in Copenhagen in 2010. And Jonathan Leatham had just published his excellent novel, Chronic City. And I loved the cover of that first edition, Hardback. I thought, oh, it's such a great cover. And then when I next saw it, was in this bookstore in Copenhagen, and it had a totally different cover. And I was horrified because I really loved the first one, and I did not like the, this, this new iteration of the cover. And I thought, if I ever have a bookstore, I'm going to push the good covers and, and push the, the versions and the editions of the book that comes closest to capturing the idea of the book. There's another book called Everything Matters by an American novelist called Ron Curry Jr. And that was another case of just looking at the cover and going, yeah, we've got it. We've got to sell this. Just because it's, yeah, it was, it was so beautifully executed. And uh, there's a picture of this evening suburban setting a house among other houses on a lane at nighttime. And it just made me want to be there. I want to know what goes on in that house. I want to know what the neighbors are like. You know, where is this? It just drew me in immediately. Ron Curry is also a contributor to the second volume of the Conversational Lexicon because of 
I, I don't know. Would I have noticed his book if it hadn't been for that wonderful cover? I don't know. So it's, it's, it can be the, it can make the difference. Of course. And I find it even more surprising when a book does make it and, and become, you know, very, very popular and considered a very good book when it has a terrible cover. And Elena Ferrante, the worst cover in the world. <laughs> horrible. I think the publishers are doing such a disservice to female writers by, by always playing on these gender stereotypes. You can tell yep. it's chiclet from a mile away. You don't have to even see the title of the book. There'll be a wrought iron gate, some woman yeah. with her back to the camera, gazing longingly at something. There are all these tropes and, and they, they roll those out for the women writers and they don't do it for the men, which is one, one of the reasons that the entire genre is kind of stale and uninteresting to, to us. There are great female writers, but they're not in the chiclet category in the same way. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. I sometimes I felt very yeah. conflicted about <laughs> by that had a bad cover, even though I was pretty sure I would, I would like the book. Um, I'd like to ask you about another one of your events that I believe used to take place one Wednesday a month. I'm guessing not during the pandemic. Um, and it's something called the Death Cafe. It's a concept that exists in many different places in the world, in over 70 countries or so. I don't know mm. if it's is adapted or if it's the original thing that you just meet and talk about death, essentially. Well, I don't know because we don't run the death cafe. We just lend the space I to see. people as, as we do with all manner of uh, stuff, you know, concerts, readings. Uh, we're not always here for that. You know, just have the key, clean up after yourself. See you later. The death cafe is something that's become a regular thing. Yeah. I've only been to it once, but then I do have a side gig as a, as a professional funeral speaker. So. I get enough of the, the kind of morbidity that goes along with talking about death. I don't have to do that on my free time. It seems great for the people who are, who, who are concerned themselves with this kind of stuff. Wait, what do you mean by professional funeral speaker? For people who want a humanist burial, who don't want a, a Christian one. I am part of an organization that will come out and, and do the funeral speech and the sort of oversee the, the funeral with the bereaved so that they they can have a worthy funeral that does not include uh, the other three guys that usually appear. Yeah, yeah. But the Death Cafe, uh, the one time I was there, it was, it was really great. There was this Swedish female priest who'd taken the train from Sweden to Oslo just to be a part of this evening. And there was another woman, she was quiet for the longest time. And then when she spoke, she told everyone that she'd had gum cancer for a long time. And uh, she'd had re replacement surgery and grafts and all horrible, painful experience. Mm. And, and she was there because she just wanted to say one thing out loud, which was, sometimes I think about going to that clinic in Switzerland. But if, if she ever did that, they have a euthanasia cl clinic there. You can check in and they'll kill you. And she just wanted to say this loud because whenever she broached the subject with her children or her husband, the, the storm of protest would, would immediately ensue. But that was totally reflexive, right? The, you don't want to hear your mother talk about the, offing yourself in Switzerland. Uh, I, I can see that. But, but also equally valid is her, her uh, need to just express this, not just carry it inside, right? So she put that out there in a circle of six or seven people. And unlike her family, these, these people said, sure, I get that. I can see why we would think about that. That's all she needed. Yeah. 
you know? uh, and, and that, I think, is the function of the death cafe. Is, uh, if, if this occupies your mind, you can uh, speak about it with people who feel the same way and are interested in the same thing you are, trying to break down the taboo. So yeah, that's uh, is one of the many uh, events that we host. <laughs> I think it's very interesting and uh, I can see why you might want to discuss this topic with strangers and not with those that care about you or that you care about too deeply because it's right. a bit easier. I remember attending a workshop run by the School of Life that are also in London and also in Berlin and they run, they used to run, I don't know if they still do, a workshop on grief and, and death and how to deal with the concept of death at a philosophical level, religious level, whatever your level of choice may be. It was very interesting to see how people opened up to complete strangers within the first 10 minutes of this workshop when they started talking about why they're there, why they why they came. And they said very personal things. Um, and I, I don't know, I wonder if the topic was different, would they have opened up as fast? Yeah, no, it's uh, obviously cathartic for people to talk about this, especially if it uh, figures in their lives in some important way. Also because then, it's a great unknown. Yeah, yeah. They, it, it, we we cannot. No one can give a definite answer uh, yeah. on that stuff. But uh, but it's it's fine to to think about it a lot, you know. And then if you can find some like-minded people and, and gather, they they may, they put out some muffins and tea and a little, you know, they, uh, and they'll have a menu uh, with conversation. There's a conversation conversation appetizer, and then there's a main course, and there's there'll be a dessert. Uh, and these are all themes for discussion, you know. So yeah. uh, I, I think it's a it's a lovely way they they work this out how to how to do it in a way that benefits the people who who attend it. And now, kind of going through all of the events of life, I know that mm. you've had uh, two weddings in the bookshop and one fist fight. Yeah, I need to update that because I just had the fourth one uh, last weekend. Along with being a funeral speaker, I also do weddings. <laughs> so I'm, I'm licensed to, it's legally binding if I pronounce you. You'll have to agree to it. I can't just do it in the pub. But yeah, uh, over the years, there's been uh, four weddings and they've been great experiences. Usually if people come here for it, they want a small intimate wedding, right? Are they customers, people who met in the bookshop or just people who love the space? Um, both. Yeah. Uh, all three. Yeah. One time, for instance, we had a, a guy who, he wanted to go large, but he still wanted to have it in this space. So he bought a huge bag, a huge bag of uh, slightly lilted flowers from a florist on the day before they'd throw them out. And then he, he strewn the whole street outside the, the store and all the way down to the, where the tram passes by on the next street with the petals of these flowers. And the bride arrived on the tram with her... Best man? What's the female best man? Is that a best? That's the best woman? What is it? Bridesmaid? Bridesmaid. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Bridesmaid and, and, and bride came off the tram. There are flower petals everywhere. He put speakers from the store out on the street and he played The Man in Me by Bob Dylan. You know, really blasted that one. And he got some gypsies who were sitting around in the same street to throw these flower petals uh, over the bride. Uh, and then brought them inside the store for champagne, and they were part of the part of the rest of the evening, really. So that was a no holds barred, full on wedding. Yeah. What about that fist fight, though? Yeah, fist fight. That was pretty early. We hadn't been open long. 
Were they fighting over a book? Well, these were two Latin American men. We can let's call one of them Luis and one of them Marco. One of them's Peruvian and the other one's Argentinian. And they were quarreling and speaking in Spanish. I, I can't follow that, really. So I don't know what it was about. It might have been Cortázar or maybe Mario Vargas Llosa. I know Luis hates that guy. But Marco said something that uh, triggered Luis. And suddenly, you see this 60-year-old gentleman just leaning over the table, grabbing him by the collar and getting ready to punch him. The other guy falls off the chair and I chased them both out of the store. I mean, Luis is one of our favorite customers. He's, he's a regular and has been since the beginning. But I had to chase them down the street because they were standing outside, kept fighting, you know. So I come back into the store and there are these four architects that, that had come in just before this started just to look at the new bookstore. And they just had total shocks on their faces. And I just told them being a book dealer, it's hard work. Always with the fist fights. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's, it's a rare occurrence. Only the one time. <laughs> Only the one time. But it goes to show that you never know what can happen in the life of a bookseller in a day in the life. Sure. Yeah, it is uh, action packed uh, a lot more than people realize. So speaking of uh, action packed, uh, we want to end this conversation. Well, we don't want to end this conversation, but we'll end it on a, on a high by talking about what might be the greatest book heist in history. And it happened at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh in, uh, and was uncovered in 2017. That two men, one of which was an archivist who worked there for more than 30 years, he stole books worth $8 million. And that included a history book signed by President Thomas Jefferson and also a Bible dating back to the 1600s. And then what they did, they sold them to collectors. And actually last year, they were sentenced to house arrest and probation Maybe um, a bit of a light sentence. I don't know. And the reason we're asking you about this is because we heard that you might know more about it. Would you like to tell us a little bit about this? Certainly. Yeah, this just speaks to the fact that the book world is full of all manner of uh, drama. We'd just been open for less than a year when a guy came into the bookstore. He presented himself. His name was John. He was a book dealer too from Pittsburgh. A uh, lovely man. And he said, if you're ever in the States, do come and visit. Uh, I have a bookstore and uh, I'll be happy to show you around, help you out in whatever way I can. And sure enough, uh, after we started going regularly to the States, one time I did go to Pittsburgh and I met John again. And uh, he was an absolute principal man. Really, really like him. He received me in his bookstore, showed me around, then took me to his warehouse where he had all these great books I held a first edition of South, the Ernest Shackleton expedition from 1918 or 20, something like, like that. Beautiful book. And, uh, and he was so welcoming and generous. Took me home, met his wife. We, you know, they made me dinner and we sat around in, in their garden in the evening talking. And uh, next morning I was going back to New York and he was there at 6.30 with his car ready to drive me to the train station, you know. I just had such a, such a lovely encounter with this, uh, this guy. The booksellers are usually nice, gentle people, but John really struck me as being especially, especially cool. So I, I go back to Norway, and, and now during the first lockdown, suddenly there are articles in New York Times and The Guardian, Washington Post. Everyone was featuring this story about this historic book heist. And I thought I recognized the name. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, I got an email from John saying he'd seen the Guardian video and glad to see we were humming along. 
And I said, you know, John, I, I saw you in the paper too. For different reasons. Uh, for different reasons. We, well, I didn't have to say that. But uh, yeah, he did get, uh, he did get uh, house arrest. Little did the judge know we'd all be under house arrest pretty soon after that, you know. So I guess it's, it's kind of an equalizer for him. But yeah, you can experience all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of shade and nuance and goings on in the book world. It's not as dusty as people expect. What do you think of? How do you see? I mean, I don't know. Do you judge him? Uh, I mean, I don't condone stealing a first edition of Principia by Thomas Newton. But what can I say? I like the guy. You know, and I'll, I'll kind of reserve my judgment. I'll speak to the things I know something about. Yeah. I mean, I love uh, a good heist, so... Yeah, who doesn't? Uh, I mean, and uh, I know that uh, he was an extremely generous, welcoming, warm and pleasant man. Hugely knowledgeable. Uh, I don't know about the other stuff, but I was surprised. And for a second there, being a bookseller felt like uh, being an uh, international man of mystery. <laughs> uh, and that was... Uh, I did enjoy that. Well, thank you very much for, for telling us the story. And now we feel like we're also in the know when it comes to, to one of the greatest uh, book heists in history. So thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. And thank you for, for being with us today on Gab Books and for this great conversation. And uh, we hope to keep in touch and maybe have you on our show again in the future. Yeah, but only next time it can be live from the store here in Oslo. That would be ideal, yeah. Uh, that I would like. Yeah. <laughs> or we'll come to Berlin or uh, London, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> We're aching to do that anyway. I think we'll fight, you know, everybody will want to travel. No, I'll come to you. No, I'll come to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, such is the world these days. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for uh, for your interest. We're really, I was really happy to talk to you and... Uh, Yep. We're glad David, uh, you know, made the introduction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to our chat today. We'll see you back here in two weeks. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and leave us voice messages at anchor.fm slash Now sit back, relax, and enjoy a good book. <laughs>